first Sunday of September, we always sort of pause and just prepare for the term ahead. There's a sense that the seasons are changing, isn't there? Summer's behind us. Gears are changing in in, in London as kids go back to school and as uh, students move to university and so on. And we in HTB always uh, revisit our vision and remember that at the heart of all the activity, all the blessing, all the challenges, the heart of this church and this movement is uh, prayer. I uh, sometimes think uh, of it in terms of uh, one of those grand old steam trains, you know, powering through the countryside. Uh, and, and you imagine in the carriages, there are sort of posh people in the dining cars and there are people reading newspapers, kids staring out the window at the view. And then you have a very different scene in the engine at the front where a man in a grimy uh, T-shirt is sweaty and dirty and shoveling coal onto the fire and generating the, the power to create all this momentum. And so in prayer, we put fuel on the fire. And with all the momentum of all that's going on around HTB and Alpha, with, with, with thousands encountering Christ uh, on Alpha, with, with, with uh, churches that are being planted... Uh, with, with marriages being restored, ex-offend, all the wonderful things that are going on, the heart of it all is prayer. And so uh, we are going to look together at a wonderful story about uh, prayer in the Old Testament. This is the, when Abraham intercedes with God for the uh, notoriously depraved cities of Sodom and uh, Gomorrah. It comes in Genesis chapter 18. And uh, the background is that three mysterious strangers have turned up at Abraham's tent. Uh, No one quite knows who they are. Some think they're angels. Uh, uh, Some people have uh, wondered whether this might even be a foreshadowing of God himself, the Trinity. Rublev's famous 15th century icon depicts uh, these three visitors uh, sitting in a circle, eating together as um, uh, a depiction of the Trinity. And these three strangers seem to know things about Abraham and Sarah. And so they prophesy over Sarah, who is now an old lady. She's never had children. And they prophesy, you're going to have a baby within a year. And she laughs. Sometimes God turns up unexpectedly in our lives, doesn't he? And he speaks words of life and hope. He may even speak into things that we have longed for and prayed for for many, many years. But we've come to a place we hardly dare to believe anymore. And like Sarah, perhaps we laugh. Maybe today God wants to speak fresh words of hope and life into your situation. Maybe you're new to church. You don't normally come to things like this. You never really expected it, but actually God knows you and sees you and loves you and wants to speak to you. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 20 of Genesis 18. And... um, 
Here we go. Genesis 18, starting at verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. I need to hear that. Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again... He spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? And he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more time. (laughs) What if only 10 can be found there? And God answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And then the Lord had when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. It is such a dramatic negotiation between Father Abraham and Father God for the destiny of two cities. And it has so much to teach us about prayer. I want us particularly to focus on verse 22. It says, Abraham stood before the Lord. Verse 23 says that Abraham approached the Lord. Verse 24, he spoke with the Lord. It begins with Abraham just standing before the Lord. Prayer begins with presence, with just showing up. I find this so encouraging. You might say, well, it's pretty obvious, Pete. But I find it so encouraging. So I can't tell you how many times I've gone to do an hour, two hours in a prayer room. And I've struggled to pray. And I take great comfort, great solace in the fact that just showing up. It might be in a prayer room. It might be in a particular seat that you go to for your quiet times. It might be a particular walk that you do. But just showing up is in itself a form of prayer. I am here standing before you, O Lord. Setting your alarm clock, booking a slot in the prayer room. I remember uh, being on a holiday in the highlands of Scotland. And, um, you know, I love to climb mountains. When I get up a mountain, it's a cliche, but I sort of feel close to God. And on this particular day, it's when the kids were quite little, I had said to Sammy, my wife, can you um, look after the kids for the day so I can just go and get alone 
out in the hills. And, and she agreed. And it's precious time, you know, when your kids are little, a day to yourself. Just some of you, you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Just raise your hand if you're secretly glad that your children are going back to school. Anyone here? <laughs> Gosh, there was a woman over there who was thrusting her hand up. We'll pray, we'll pray for you later. So I, I, I was, um, and your children, I was, um, I was excited about um, this day. And I set out from the house uh, and I said to the Lord, it's just you and me for the day. You and me, God. And I, I, and, and I began to go through my prayer list. You know, there's always all these different people I've got to pray for, different places, different situations. I, I'm going to get right through my prayer list today. You and I are going to have a brilliant time, God. But gradually the weather set in. That's what they call it in Scotland. Before that, there was no weather. Suddenly there is definitely weather. And the weather set in and the, the, the road began to get steeper and then the track and the path. And I began to get out of breath and eventually I made it to the top of the mountain, came down. And several hours later, I was trudging back into the house, soggy and wet. And suddenly a sort of shard of guilt hit me. And I realized, oh my goodness, I haven't done my prayer list. You know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't ticked everything off. And I said, oh God, I'm so sorry. What a wasted opportunity. And I I just sense God saying, I've quite enjoyed it. Just walking with you, you shutting up for a while, just being together. Prayer begins with just showing up, standing before the Lord, maybe even walking with the Lord. It's one of the keys to 24-7 prayer all around the world is it's got... Uh, a sort of model built into it for accountability. You sign up for an hour in the prayer room, you have to go because some poor soul can't go home until you arrive. It's as spiritual as that. And so many times, I'm being very honest with you, so many times I've gone to the prayer room grumbling, whose stupid idea was this? And I left an hour or two later grateful. But whether it's praying at night, Jesus often did it. There are particular blessings in sacrificing sleep sometimes to seek God. Or, or, or finding a slot maybe on your way to work early in the morning. Or maybe you've got young kids mid-morning. They can come in and draw their pictures of, sort of Jesus stabbing Satan and trying to make sure it's not the other way around, you know. And, and whilst you talk to the Lord. But, 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 but it works for everyone. And it's just a mechanism that helps us to show up before the Lord. I had an awkward thing that happened to me in July. Um, I was at Focus, of course, many of you, and uh, we were camping, uh, like many of you. And you know that thing, you sort of don't really look in a mirror for a week. And, um, you know, your standards drop uh, a little bit. And there was a particular day I had to pop off site to go and speak at another festival called New Wine. And um, I, I was going to go with Sammy, my wife, and, and I said, OK, we'd, we'd better go and, and, and head over to New Wine. And she looked at me, she said, you're not going like that. I said, what do you mean? She said, you, are, you look a state. I said, what do you mean? She said, you have a large egg stain on your shirt and an entire splash of coffee up your sleeve. This is not how you stand in front of 5,000 people. 
So she very sweetly said, look, I'm going to pop back to the tent and I'll get you a change of clothes. She went, came back, handed me a carrier bag, a change of clothes. We drove off to New Wine. Just before we got there, I said, oh, I need to go and put my smart clothes on. Went into a hotel, got into the loose, opened the bag and with horror realised that Sammy had grabbed the, the wrong clothes for me to change into. My wife had grabbed my pyjamas My, my pyjamas have a Batman motif on the front. <laughs> I'm staring at them going, egg-stained Batman. You know, like, do I want to look unhygienic or just unhinged in front of them all? <laughs> I chose the egg stain, you'll be thrilled to hear. Do you know, standing before the Lord can be even more scary than standing before 5,000 people. Which is why so many of us spend so much of our life trying to avoid it really happening. Adam and Eve, after the fall, were shamed and hid from the gaze of the Lord. And to stand before the God of the universe, who is holy and righteous, can be scary. We can feel messy, dirty, silly embarrassed. But we know it's not kind of spiritual to admit those things and so we just find a thousand other excuses. And it's so important therefore that we realise that when we approach the face of God, he is not scowling, he is smiling at us. He is looking forward to the time with you more than you are looking forward to the time with him. Just show up. Stand before the Lord. And it's said three times in Scripture of Abraham that he was a friend of God. That is how he was able to speak so boldly. He knew that God was his friend. Prayer is the articulation of friendship. It is not a religious obligation. Oh, I should pray. It is an extraordinary relational invitation from a friend. Henri Nouwen, who was a Dutch priest and brilliant writer, says prayer is important because it's the place in which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you my beloved daughter, my beloved son, my beloved child. To pray, he says, is to let that voice speak to the centre of your being, to your guts, and to let that voice in your whole being. Who am I? I am the beloved. Whatever this term is going to hold for you, the good, the bad and the ugly, whatever stress, whatever challenge, the good news is that in the core of your being, you can know that you are loved, that you are okay, that you are forgiven, that you are favoured. And that is where true confidence comes from in a world that is continually saying, prove yourself. We, as people of prayer, come from a place of enormous security. I am loved. And so we stand before the Lord. Abraham just shows up. His prayer begins with presence, but then it moves to petition. 
he very quickly begins to cry out to God to intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, negotiating God down from 50 righteous people to just 10. Some people get upset at the notion of God destroying a city. We don't like the idea of judgment. It's a funny thing. I have a friend who runs a major um, charity caring for survivors of sexual abuse. And she deals with the most extraordinary trauma, the things that have been done. You hear the stories, you get so angry. You can't believe how people behave. And she's a very sweet lady. And she said to me once, do you know, I find such comfort in the judgment of God. She said, I love the idea, one day he will come with a, some big sword, and you know, he will execute judgment. And so I don't have to. She said, it's one of the ways I cope. I don't have to get angry, because God gets angry. And we have to understand, we read this in Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, the cries of the victims had reached the, eye, the ears of God. And he's saying, well, okay, I'm going to blow the whistle. But Abraham is negotiating. Why? Now, let's be clear about this. He is negotiating because his nephew, Lot, is living in the city of Sodom. The reason for his prayer is that he cares for somebody in the city. And he's thinking, I wonder how big Lot's family has got these days. Maybe there's 50 of them. Maybe maybe there's only 10 in their family. And so he is praying for his family. That's why he's praying for the city. Listen, one of the keys to intercession, one of the things that will put fuel on the fire and help you to cry out is when you just care. That's why God has put you in your family or in your street or in your workplace or in your school or your college because you get to know people, you begin to care about them and so instinctively, as someone who knows Jesus, you begin to stand in the gap between heaven and earth and you begin to lift people's needs and their brokenness and their problems to God in prayer and you begin to cry out to God and you say, save them, rescue them, speak to them, heal them, forgive them, break into their lives, stretch out your hand, you begin to intercede. You say to me, I'm the only Christian in my workplace, it's difficult. That is difficult. I'm the only Christian in my school, that's difficult. But if you are the only Christian in that environment, you are there, placed by God as someone who is able to pray, as no one else can pray for those people because you know them, you care about them. And so that is why Abraham is interceding here. And he intercedes in the most extraordinary way, with a a sort of militancy that actually sometimes makes people uncomfortable. Now, there is reverence in his language, but it's interesting that um, he at times seems almost defiant with God. Walter Brueggemann, who's a great theologian, uh, says that verse 22, the one we're focusing on, is one of the most important comments in all of Scripture concerning prayer. That phrase, Abraham stood before the Lord is one of 18 scribal corrections 
Not copying errors, but corrections, where the scribes writing out the old manuscripts so that it could be translated into a new uh, generation changed the original because they disagreed with some fact or some piece of its theology. Let me say it again. They, they changed it not, not by mistake, but they said, oh, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. And a little footnote, I've changed this. In the original, it didn't say Abraham stood before the Lord. It said the Lord stood before Abraham. And the scribes felt very uncomfortable with this. Because they said, it sounds like God is the supplicant and that somehow Abraham has the upper hand here. That somehow almost Abraham is in control. He doesn't seem deferential enough. He seems more demanding. And then they have to change it a little bit later as well because where in your and my Bibles... Abraham says to the Lord, far be it from you to do such a thing. In the original, the oldest version, before these scribes got to it, actually what it said was Abraham addressed the Lord and said, you would defile yourself. You would pollute yourself if you did such a thing. And they said, we can't have that. He's being, he's he's talking out of turn to Yahweh. Now, obviously we're grateful the Bibles as we have them. But I want you to hear, therefore, the contention, the sense of force, the militancy in this exchange between Abraham and God for the sake of Abraham's nephew, Lot, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was desperate because he cared for his nephew. He haggles God down. And interestingly, the reason that he haggled down to 10 wasn't just he thought maybe that's the size Lot's family's got to, but in Jewish thought, there was, um, if you had just 10 righteous men, and it, it was men, I'm sorry, it was, it was gender specific, but if you had 10 righteous men in a city, that it was thought that they could exercise kind of uh, priestly authority and make executive decisions for the city. And, and they had a word for this grouping of ten. And I, I, I hesitate to tell you the word, okay? But I'm going to tell you what it, they, they, they called the grouping of ten a minion. And some of you are so ungodly, you're just thinking of cute little yellow men jumping around. Right now. Raise your hand, raise your hand, if that's all the minion. Okay, I'm giving you the biblical. A minion was a group of ten righteous people that could make... Uh, righteous decisions for a city. And so he was saying, God, if there's just 10 people, surely my own nephew will be walking in righteousness. If there's just 10 of them that are somehow building relationships, making good decisions, interceding for the city, then the city can be saved. This is at the core of our theology, the belief that we, as a relatively small group of Christians, can live together and conspire together and relate together, dream together and pray together in such a way that we can be salt that brings hope to the city, light that shines out in the city, yeast in the dough, that mustard seed that somehow grows to become something that can influence the city. 
And so we gather in our twos and our threes and our tens. We gather around meal tables. We gather at prayer meetings. We gather at the Tuesday morning prayer meeting at 7 a.m. in the spring down below here to do what Abraham does, to haggle, to wrestle with God, to fight injustice, to cry out for God's purposes to come and for him to save. The prayer meeting starts this Tuesday for this term, this Tuesday morning, 7 a.m. Why don't you come? It's one way that you could just show up. You might, you might say to me, I, I don't know what to say to God. Listen, I'm setting the bar so low, just show up. And if you don't even manage to say anything, just show up. And some of you then are saying, okay, I've got the showing up thing. I go to the prayer room, I get along to the prayer meeting. I've got the space I've created in my head and my life for a little bit of daily time with God. Okay, now begin to speak up. Begin to walk and talk with God as Abraham does, knowing that you have authority to change history. You have authority to to talk with God in this extraordinary way that Abraham does and to cry out for your families and your workplaces, for this city, for this nation at this time. Intercession is incredibly powerful. Walter Wink said, history belongs to the intercessors. Let me finish with a story. Some of you will have heard this before, and the reason I use it now is that it relates to a movie many of you will have seen over the summer. Just give me, give me a wave if you've seen the movie Dunkirk. Uh, yeah, okay, good handful of you. So uh, people are saying it's sort of you know, a classic movie, one of the greatest war movies ever made. It depicts that extraordinary event of 1940. Uh, where uh, 338,000 Allied troops were evacuated by a flotilla of, of, of boats, some small, uh, some big, uh, and, and, and they, they, they lived to fight another day. And um, it's an extraordinary movie. Now, everyone knows that, but what a few less people know is that behind that great deliverance was intercession. King George VI, realizing that our nation was, as it were, on its knees, called this nation on the 26th of May, 1940, to a national day of prayer that God would rescue us. King George VI understood, because he was a man of faith, that our battle is not just against flesh and blood, but it is also against principalities and powers in the high places, the Apostle Paul says. King George VI somehow understood that those who sail ships should go and sail ships, those who could fight on the front line should fight on the front line, but those who can't could at least pray. Every one of us can pray. And we have videos and photographs of queues of people out of Westminster Abbey that day, out of cathedrals and churches like this one around the nation, as people flocked to cry out to God, realizing that ultimately it is not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God, that ultimately salvation comes not from the hand of man, but from the hand of God, that cities are saved, that cities are rescued, that destinies are changed, that people are healed, that families are put back together, that lives are transformed, that the tide can turn in a nation, that generations can be rescued when God's people, filled with God's power, cry out for God's purposes in a life, in a family, in a street, in a city, and in a nation. And that's what we saw 
on the 26th of May, 1940, the nation united in intercessory prayer. And apparent miracles took place. By the way, that was Winston Churchill's assessment, not mine. He called it the miracle of Dunkirk. Because for three days, the Nazi forces inexplicably stood idle whilst the evacuation unfolded. No one quite understands why Hitler made that massive tactical error. On the Tuesday, bad weather stopped the Luftwaffe flying, which meant that the Allied troops could all get to the beaches without being shot at from the skies. But then on the Wednesday, as they began to sail, the storms died down and they were able to cross the channel safely. The king was so convinced that God in heaven had heard their prayers that he declared Sunday the 9th of June a national day of thanksgiving. Oh, how I long for the time when our nation is in crisis, that those who lead us would not just look to uh, focus groups and Excel spreadsheets and economists and social theorists, but would also look to the living God who raises up and brings down and would call the people in this nation to intercede together, understanding there is a spiritual realm, there is a kingdom that is greater than our kingdom, and the hope of nations, the hope of individuals, the hope of your life, the hope of your family is ultimately not in the decisions you do or don't make, not in the things that have or have not been done to you, but in your heart turning to the heart of God in prayer. Amen? And wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if as well as the odd national day of prayer, we had to have the odd national day of thanksgiving as the nation rose up and said, God, the living God, has heard our prayers. Amen? That's what happened that day on Sunday, the 9th of June, 1940. The invitation to pray is ultimately an invitation to presence. You do not stand before God in an eggy shirt or a Batman pajama, but made righteousness clothed in the robes of Christ. By his blood, he forgives you. By his broken body, we get healed. And we can walk into the presence of God with such confidence, like Abraham, knowing we are friends of God. Not just in Abraham, but in Christ Jesus, the Father's own Son. And so as you take the bread and take the wine, know that you are loved, you are forgiven, and you have the very authority of Jesus to change history through the power of bringing your will into line with heaven's will in prayer. You can probably see uh, from the color of me that I just got back from a very hot country yesterday morning, from Turkey. In Turkey, five times a day, I heard the call to prayer resounding from the minarets all around. And I talked to one of the locals, he's a Muslim, of course, and he said to me, "Uh, we pray five times a day. You Christians, is um, is it once on a Sunday? I was like, hang on a minute. I do 24-7 prayer. You picked the wrong guy here, you know. (laughs) And I don't want to get heavy on you, but could I say this to you? 
You know, when I read the statistics about the church in decline in this nation, when Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, I hear a call to prayer. It doesn't have to be this way. When I read, as I did when I woke up this morning, that North Korea has just conducted its sixth nuclear missile test I'm not a big, powerful person. I'm not a politician. I'm not an ambassador. But I tell you what, I hear a call to pray. When my heart breaks with tragedies like the attacks in Barcelona, or the grief of Grenfell Towers, I hear a call to pray. When I think about people I know and love who don't know Jesus, when I see friends messing up their own marriages and their covenant commitments to one another, when I I sit with someone who's denying themselves food and cutting their own body, my heart breaks like Abraham's heart breaking for Lot, for his nephew, for his family. And we begin to cry out for people and for families and for streets and for schools and for workplaces and for the city and for the nation, for we know that ultimately the hope for the United Kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning once again. Amen? Amen. I'm Bear Grylls. My favourite way to start the day, the Bible in one year. That's how wild I am. Find out more at BibleInOneYear.org or download the Bible in One Year app.